And open your Bible to Mark chapter 9, verse 42 through 50, as we continue in our series, New Year, Same Truth. As you find uh, your place in the Gospel of Mark, I just want to say to those of you who are visiting with us today that we're incredibly grateful to have you as our guest, and we would love to know you. Uh, You can stop by one of the welcome tables on your way off campus this morning, or you can text the word CONNECT uh, to the number that is on the screen, and one of our team members will follow up with you this week. If you're watching online for the first time, we invite you to do that as well, and we would love to get connected with you. Also, uh, a way that you can get more connected into Life Our Church or just learn a little bit more about who we are is by attending our Discover Bayshore launch. Our next one takes place next Sunday at 1215. So we'd love for you to RSVP for that. You can find instructions uh, in the handout you received when you walked in uh, and you can also just show up next Sunday. Uh, As Jim mentioned, next Sunday is going to be our vision day. And so in the morning, we'll be talking about our vision as a church and why we do what we do. And then that night, we'll be celebrating some specific things that God has been doing in the life of our church and talk about things we believe the Lord is leading us to do in the year and years to come. I just cannot express how incredible it is that this church gave over $600,000 towards missions and outreach last year. It's an incredible percentage of our budget and when you compare how churches are doing globally and we believe that the Lord is blessing us and blessing this community, blessing this church family in such a way that we're just getting started and building upon the great legacy that we have as a church. And so I would invite you to come next Sunday night and hear more about what God is doing. All right, well, let's read Mark chapter 9, verse 42 through 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone who will be salted with fire, salt is good. Excuse me, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let me pray. God, uh, with what's going on in our world this week in the Ukraine, we are reminded of the fragility of life. We do not need that reminder. We should not need that reminder, but often we do, Lord. God, we're not promised tomorrow. And so, Lord, in light of that, may we take seriously the words here that Jesus teaches us. God, may we be open to what you want to say to us. And I pray you would be the one who says what needs to be said today, that I would decrease, that you would increase, and that you would get glory as a result of our time in the word this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, let me quickly address that if you noticed verse 44 and 46 were skipped when I was reading. That's because in the modern translations of the Bible, there is no verse 44 and 46. Uh, Because verse 44 and 46 in some of the older uh, English translations of the Bible repeat what is said in verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And in the earliest Greek manuscripts, the New Testament was written in Greek, a little bit of Aramaic, it's actually only in there one time. And so there, there were a few later manuscripts that had it 
three times, but to be more accurate to the original Greek, the modern translations don't include it in there. Now, verse references weren't in the original letters that were written, and so, um, but they've become popular by, you know, the 19, you know, 80s and when modern translations are, are being used in English beyond the King James, that they just decided instead of, you know, changing the verses from what most people are familiar with to just omit those verses. They're not trying to hide anything. Verse 48 is still there. It's not any weird, you know, new age religion conspiracy theory that you might be told by people who just um, don't know any better. Uh, it, it's just they're being accurate to the Greek manuscripts. There are places in the translation of the Bible where some of the manuscripts don't have 100% consistency. This takes place in about 1% of what is in the Bible, what's translated today, and none of it, none of those affect any of the meaning of the text whatsoever. So I just felt like that needed to be said before I moved on with what Jesus is saying here. Christianity teaches us that a transformation takes place in the life of a believer, and to put it simply, this transformation leads to loving God and loving people. Jesus said there's no greater commandment than to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, so with everything, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Understanding this gives us a framework for what Jesus is saying in our text today. If who you are prohibits you from loving God and loving people, then it would be better to not be whole so you can enter heaven. If who you are prohibits you from loving God and loving people, then it would be better for you to not be whole so you can enter heaven. This does not jive with the message that the key to life is just being ourself. But this is consistent with the message of the gospel that says we need to repent and be transformed. We are who we are, but if we do a little digging, we will discover that we and no one is really self-made. There are all kinds of things that have shaped us into who we are today. Our family, our geography, our experiences, our exposure to ideology and beliefs and so forth. There are good things about us and there are bad things about us. A Christian realizes the good things about me do not make up for the fact that there are things about me that set me in a direction apart from God. I may or may not see all the consequences of those things, but I do see the problem with those things. I am inclined to want to do my own thing instead of the right thing. Now, I measure up okay when I compare myself to people like Adolf Hitler and, you know, that really bad kid from school and the man on our street who hated everyone. But when it comes to a holy God, I fall short. So as a Christian, I trust in God for righteousness. Righteousness is my position. It's where I stand with God. I'm in right relationship with God because he makes me in right relationship with him. But righteousness is also my direction it determines the choices I make and the way that I live my life. Now, that's a pretty quick but accurate description of the Christian life. The Bible teaches us that unless we repent and trust in God for righteousness, that's position and direction, then we are headed to an eternity outside of God's goodness. We traditionally call this hell. Now, we live in a culture that has grown accustomed to toying with 
and trivializing any notion of hell. We make joy jokes about seeing people in hell. We call summers in Florida hell, not feeling that today. And most important, we just downplay the reality of hell. And you see a trend to focus more and more on a Christianity that is by our definition more positive and loving. There's a religion that labels itself as Christian that is denying or ignoring the reality of hell. And it's growing rapidly, particularly in a secularized Bible belt. If you have a problem with the idea of hell, I want you to think about it like this. God is a loving father. A loving father is not indifferent. A loving father is not indifferent to things happening to his children. And that is why Jesus says what is recorded in Mark chapter 9, verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, the phrase little ones in the Greek means little ones. You really are oppressed with my Bible knowledge and translating ability. This thought here is definitely connected to Jesus' instructions recorded earlier in this chapter. When he took a child, put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Matthew connects the two teachings here directly in his gospel. Now, I think I alluded to this when we covered it, but there is debate about whether Jesus was talking about literal children or he was using the presence of children to illustrate spiritual children. But either way, I think both are applicable to Jesus' point of warning to those who cause others to stumble. And Jesus says, if you do this, it would be better if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. Now, when Jesus is talking about a millstone here, he's not talking about a stone that was used in that day, typically by the woman of the house to grind grain, but he was talking about a large millstone, that it would actually be turned by a donkey. And I believe we have a, a picture of this millstone. I mean, we could not pick it up. And if you were thrown into the sea with this large millstone on your neck, you were hopeless. That was it for you. And, and to drive this a step further, in their day, there was actually debate about what happened to someone if their body was last, lost at sea. Some people thought that that mean their soul could never get to Abraham's bosom. Their soul could never get to heaven. And in their day, they would actually wait several days, weeks, even though that wasn't the typical custom, if the body was lost to mourn because they did not want to have a funeral service without this Body. And so there's this question of uncertainty in their day about what happens to someone who's lost at sea. And so Jesus is saying it would be better for you if you were lost at sea with no hope because the millstone were hung around your neck and the uncertainty about your eternity than if you caused one of these little ones to stumble. Now I have to pause right here because for some reason people bring a lot of baggage into reading the Bible, and they often kind of forget common sense when they read the Bible. So whenever you get upset at how people treat what you say on social media, just remember what God probably feels about when we read the Bible. But, so people read this as harsh, as if we mess up once, 
And God's so mad that he would say something like this. And, and that's how they treat the Bible. But you see, sin isn't a one-time thing. It's a reoccurring thing that becomes an identity thing. You tell me someone who says, I've only sinned once, and I will show you someone who lies over and over again about what, how much they sin. You see, sin is not a one-time thing. It, it becomes an identity. And this is why the severity and this is why Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Verse 43, it is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I think people mistakenly believe that you can do whatever you want as long as it doesn't cause a problem for anyone else. So why then would we as Christians ever say anything about how someone spends their money or about how someone practices sexuality or about what someone chooses to consume? And there are two reasons that we should say something about these things. Number one, I don't think we realize that private actions never stay private. Private choices never stay private. If we leave the walls of our home, we are in many ways shaped by the choices we make in our home. And the choices that we make in our home are affecting who we are, period, and that ultimately affects who we are outside of our home. And so, those decisions actually matter and never affect just one person. Secondly, Jesus said so, here and elsewhere. And so that's why we care about these things. Now note that this passage should not be taken literally. One of the early church fathers, Origen, actually mutilated himself when he was not able to suppress his lust. And there have been stories of others who don't understand the grace of God and believe they have to do these things in order to stay right with God. That's extremism. That's legalism. This passage should not be taken literally. But it also must not be overlooked or ignored. Jesus makes this about eternity, about hell, the word Gehenna, which referred to the Valley of Hinnom. This was a deep valley on the west side of Jerusalem. It was a site where child sacrifices took place to the god Molech. It was a place where Israelites would later adopt that same practice in their rebellion towards God as well. And then Josiah, when he became the king of Israel, desecrated the site and eventually became, led it to become the garbage and sewage dump. It was a symbol of a place of punishment Punishment, because worms and fires always were there consuming the refuse. And so Jesus is using illustrative language here for what the place of eternal separation is. Now again, because we don't know for certain what that place is like, we tend to downplay it. We tend to downplay it and say it's just metaphorical. And I like what Tim Keller says about this. Tim Keller says it is metaphorical. Fire is metaphorical. It's metaphorical for something, something infinitely worse than fire. So you see, we don't wrap our minds around what heaven is fully, and we don't wrap our minds around what eternal separation from God is fully. 
And so Jesus is warning of the wrath to come for those who have built an identity on sin, on going their own direction, which affects others. God doesn't want this for us. Jesus says in verse 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. This is actually a passage that is hard to understand and interpret and translate. Jesus uses the word everyone to make sure that we know that this applies more to than just than 12. And both salt and fire, which he uses, symbolize purification. Paul would echo this in Colossians 4 when he talks about our speech being seasoned with salt. And, and, and so Jesus says, have salt among yourselves. And then he says, be at peace with one another. Believers should be at peace with one another. He's talking about this purification that is happening in the life of a believer where they're loving God more and they're loving each other more. And so while there is some debate about all the nuances of this verse, here is what is clear. The Christian life is a continual submission of ourselves to God and his transformation of our lives. The Christian life is a continual submission of ourselves to God and his transformation of our lives. When you realize who Jesus is, you want more of him. That's our life, Christians. It's this inexplicable, growing desire to be changed. It's a marathon, not a sprint, but it's headed in the direction of Christ-likeness. Christian repentance isn't something that happened one day when you were a child. It's something that happens daily because of what we confess. Being saved isn't about one time when you said a prayer. Being saved is about who God is in your life every day. That's why Christians that don't want to change are puzzling because they deny the central reality of the gospel that our heart is bent away from God and God woos our heart back to him and transforms us into Christ-likeness. So as we think about what Jesus taught about the wrath to come though on those who sin and don't repent, leading others to sin, and we think about how a Christian wants to be more and more in line with what honors God and points others to him, I wanna focus on a part of Jesus' teaching here that Matthew wrote down, but Mark did not, and with it comes a greater understanding of temptation. That's found in Matthew chapter 18, verse seven, where he records Jesus saying, woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So there are two things that we must acknowledge about temptation. The first is this. Temptation is necessary. Temptation is necessary. For it is necessary that temptation comes, Jesus says, or that temptations come. That's a word that means, temptations is a word that means snare or stumbling block. It's something that leads you to be trapped. And Jesus says that that is necessary. Well, God wants you to trust him. God wants you to see that he created you to enjoy him forever. And we're called to this word submission to God. It's a military word in the Greek that really, you know, symbolizes this submission to the one who outranks us and, and who we should be following. And with that freedom to submit, that call to submit comes the opportunity to not submit. And then what we see in our world 
is we build identities, we build worldviews, we build ways of operating based on continuing to avoid submission. This is temptation. This is our temptation to walk in that apart from God. Now, while we may not fully realize the theological implications or the structure here of temptation being necessary, I think that for the most part, we can understand at least that temptation is inevitable. And thus, we respond to temptation in one of two ways, either what temptation tells us to do or what God says to do, what the Bible says to do. We are tempted to look out for our own interest, believing that even if for a moment we know better than God. That our immediate interests are better than what God has in mind for us. And that God's rules for us are not really there for our absolute, complete, and amazing benefit. And we are tempted to think that this is an event, a moment in time, when in actuality our choices are to choose God's, excuse me, to choose our will over God's will, are starting our journey down a path that seems right, but Proverbs 14, 12 tells us is leading to destruction. The temptation is there to show us there is a better way of living. There is a better way. No, rather, there is a way and a truth and a life, and that is Jesus. And if the temptation were not there, we would not see that we need to choose God and that we do not, in fact, choose him naturally. So temptation is necessary for salvation. Temptation is necessary for righteousness, right position and right direction. Temptation is necessary. But another thing we must acknowledge about temptation is that tempting is bad. Tempting is bad. Jesus says, but woe to the one by whom the temptation Comes. Now, when I hear the word woe, I grew up in the 90s, and so I think of the show Blossom and Joey, who says, whoa. But if you're familiar with the Bible, you're familiar that this verse is a term often used in the Bible to declare grief to the person it is pronounced. Notice the contrast between two people in our text, little ones who put their trust in their father and people looking out for their own interest who actually distract little ones from trusting in their father. Do you know those people? Are you that person? You're pursuing yourself and so you begin to try to bring others along with you in your pursuit of self. In your desire to meet sexual fulfillment through what you watch, think, and say, you begin to influence others and bring others with you. In your desire to waste money on temporal things and activities that fade away instead of being wise so that you can be generous, you want others with you. And you're putting down of others who are not like you or struggle in different ways, you make others think the same things. And if so, woe to you. Jesus says it would be better if you were drowned in the sea than to deal with the wrath of God. Without repentance, it takes us to a place where not only we are succumbing to temptation, but we are tempting others. Who you are is not just affecting you, it is affecting others. Who you are affects your children. Your sin affects your children. 
even if you teach them otherwise, your sin is having an effect on your children in ways that you may not even see. Who you are influences and affects the friends in your life. Even if you think they make their own decisions, yes, they do, but you're an influence in their life. Pretty much anybody you are around is affected by the choices that you are making. And if those choices are apart from God, Jesus says, woe to you. Now, hopefully, we are aware of this, we are awake to this, and we don't want this to be us. And if that's you, I wanna give you three things that we must apply about temptation. And these have subpoints, so I gotta go quick because I'm running out of time. Number one, we must examine ourselves. As we talk about temptation, it's very easy to put the focus on others. In fact, anytime we hear a sermon or read a Bible passage, it's so easy to think about the people that have hurt us or just aggravate us, right? You hear it in Bible study or in sermon and you, you know, that involuntary jab to the person that's next to you or the stare down across the life group room, you know, at the person or the intentional avoiding of eye contact, but you're kind of looking at them at the side of your eye or you just send them a text because you're, you're blind and you tell them that's you he's talking about. You see the wrong in their life. You see how they are continually giving into temptation and maybe bringing others down and influencing others. But Jesus makes this personal. We must examine ourselves. Like he talks about in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 through 10, and like is recorded in Luke 18. The reality is, is, is if we are not truly willing to examine ourselves, then we are not really repentant people. And our religion is just us seeking justification for the way that we live. Religion without repentance is the problem with religion. The problem with the church is that people do churchy things without examining themselves, without really asking God to shape them. And there is great urgency here because if we are not examining ourselves and we are not repentant, we could be headed towards major problems or straight to hell. We must examine ourselves. The second thing that we need to apply about temptation today is this. We must stop making excuses. In, in the text, Jesus refers to the hand, which is what you do, almost as if the things we do are involuntary, right? We just can't help that we do those things. Or the foot, which is referring to our direction and where we end up, is almost as if we just ended up by chance where we are. And the eye, which is what you see, which is the things we're looking at. And like, we can't help look at those things. And the issue, though, here is that they're making excuses for sin. And so Jesus says, then cut them off. Or cut it out if that's really the reason you're sinning. As we struggle to be obedient to God, as we struggle to put the interest of God and others above our own interests, we lean towards making excuses and we are avoiding the real issue, the sin in our hearts. Now let me give you quickly some common excuses that people make. Uh, four of these. One is our people. Our people, the people in our lives. Well, it's because my parents. They didn't grow me up you know, in a church home and they, they did this and that's, that's why I sinned. Or our spouse. I mean, have you met her? Have you seen them? They, they, they don't care about God the way I care about God. Or, or this is this aggravating thing about them. And, and here's why I am the way I am. Or our children. I mean, they just exhaust me. And I just don't have anything to give. And I don't have any time. And so because of this, this is why I'm sinning. Or our friends. The people we're around. So, so we use the excuse 
of people. We also use the excuse of our past. Maybe you had a rough life growing up. I'm not saying that you won't have to work through that. I know I've had to. I'm not denying that you've had a rough life. But it does not stop you from being obedient to God, nor is it what causes you to sin. Maybe you've made some extremely bad choices in your life. And because of that, you're hesitant to go after God. Maybe there's been disappointment in religious leaders, in the church, and and other things. These are reasons we make excuses to justify our continuation of sin. Another excuse we make is our personality. Maybe you're a go-after-it, all-in type of person. That's fine. But that's no excuse to treat people like they're garbage, to make poor financial decisions, to throw away morals for a moment of fun, and to mow over people. Maybe you're an introvert. You have a hard time building relationships. That's fine. You're still called to build some, believer. You might not be speaking in front of hundreds of people, but you cannot use as an excuse to not invest in the lives of others. No one is called to work, go home, and binge Netflix or Fox News and never be around other people. Maybe you speak your mind. Thank God for people willing to say what others are thinking. But gossip is destructive. Being a blunt jerk crushes people's feelings. Your boldness is meant to glorify God and challenge and encourage others, not elevate yourself and make others feel worthless. And I could list several things about our personality there to be used to love God and love people, not elevate ourselves. And another excuse we make is our phase. And I could have said season, but... This starts with a P, and I'm Baptist, and so now they all start with the same letter. And we often say, the reason I can't follow God is because the season of life I'm in. I'm young. What do I have to offer? I don't know everything. You're right, teenagers. You don't know everything, and your parents say amen. But God has given you not an amateur version of the Holy Spirit, but his Holy Spirit, and God wants to use you. The scripture actually says don't let people despise your youth and our youth here. If someone does, I want to know about it. Single. I don't, I I just, I might know Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright or, you know, all the people in church, they're mostly married and it's true and it gets annoying if you're single. I get it. And, you know, just I don't have all this and I want to enjoy me. You're single. You have more free time to be used for the glory of God than you ever will probably in your life. And God wants to do a great thing in your life. You have preschoolers and you're exhausted from that. And let me tell you this. That's probably the least fruitful season of your life in terms of other people. It's true. Those who don't have preschoolers feel sorry for you because you're in that season of life. They don't say it necessarily, but they do. But listen, God still uses you certainly to plant seeds in the lives of those who you are around, but not to withdraw from biblical community and withdraw from serving, but you'll be amazed at the opportunities you have in that season of your life that you might not have in another season of life. Maybe you have teenagers and things have gone really wrong. Why would you then dive deeper away from the church when things have gone really wrong instead of pressing in and repenting and saying, we need to do things differently. You're entering into the empty nest season of life. You have more freedom than you've ever had. I will just tell you, the apostle Paul said, do not allow your freedom to become an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. That means the freedom we are given as Christians isn't so we can accomplish everything on our bucket list, which I have nothing against bucket bucket list, but if we have a bucket list and not a, hey, what can God do through me on my list, then our priorities are out of whack. 
And if you're older and you're in the older season of life and you're tired, listen, you have more wisdom in your tired paragraph than I do in this whole sermon. And we need you to press into the lives of these younger believers who are trying to figure out the direction God would have for their life. Do not believe the lie that you are invaluable. And so a lot of people have said, I've learned to say no to things, and that's great. But stop saying no to what Jesus says yes to, okay? And say yes to what Jesus says. All right, well, those, I said I was gonna go quick, and I didn't go that quick. So those factors deter us. And we might have to work around them. We have to grow some of these things. But if we're honest, if we're honest, the reason we sin is our heart. It's our heart. We want what we want out of this life. And we don't do what Jesus has called us to do. And it's not a, well, that's just how it is life. Jesus makes this a deeply spiritual issue. I said I grew up in the 90s. When I first started going to church, I listened to what every good Christian listened to, and that was DC Talk. And one of their songs, they say this, I keep trying to find a life on my own apart from you. I'm the king of excuses. I've got one for every selfish thing I do. What's going on inside of me? I despise my own behavior. This only serves to confirm my suspicions that I'm still a man in need of a savior. We need to stop making excuses. And lastly, the last thing about, that we must apply about temptation is we must take action. Immediate action. If something is leading you to sin, get rid of it. Jesus says don't toy with it. Don't flirt with it, don't entertain it, destroy it. Now, if there's something in your life that's consuming you and leading you down a path apart from God, today is the day. Lay it down. Lay it down today. Drastic. Obviously strong figurative language used by Jesus to cause us to realize that drastic action is necessary to overcome temptation. I remember my friend Michael, who in college was addicted to pornography. He got rid of his laptop. He got rid of his phone. He only had like one of those jitterbugs. And he, he was a student at Auburn University. He did all of his schoolwork in the library. Drastic. I remember my friend who couldn't control their spending, continued to go in debt. They carried a driver's license and cash in their wallet and their spouse took care of the money. Listen, a lot of us think of sin as a kitty cat. We have a picture of a kitty cat. Some of you think it's cute. It's not. <laughs> but cats are sketchy. Amen, that's right. <laughs> they do annoying things. They get into things. But they're not gonna kill you and destroy you. And a lot of us are treating our sin like this. But sin is a lion seeking to devour and to destroy you. You can't play around with it. You can't ignore it. You need to take drastic action to avoid it and prevent it in your life. And then lastly, we must take proactive action. How we respond to temptation is typically decided long before we are tempted. Proverbs 27 verse 12 says, the prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and suffer for it. 1 Timothy 4, 7 says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. We must take action. All right, 
We gotta go. So I just wanna say two quick things. One is this. Christianity is incompatible with the belief that worldly gain is always what's best for us. Christianity is incompatible with the belief worldly gain is always what's best for us. Just a little bit ago, we read that Jesus says in Mark 8, 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Trials, where we don't have what we want, can be a huge blessing in our life. And the temptation in that trial is to just try to get worldly gain instead of look to what God might be saying. But the Christian understands, we know that we consider pure trials pure joy, knowing that the testing of our faith develops perseverance, but we must let perseverance finish its work in us so that we may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The goal in a trial, the goal in a temptation is not worldly gain, but it is more of Jesus in our life. And then one more thing, the call to withstand temptation is the call to know who we are in Christ. It's the call to know who we are in Christ in the midst of that temptation. Often in my home, when we say no to our children about something or we say we're gonna do something, the response that my children give is, but the Millers get to do that. Sorry, if you're the Millers, we're not jealous of you. I don't even know. I'm not talking about anybody specifically. The Millers get to do that. And they don't say it like that, but that's how I hear them talk when they say it. And I always say, well, we're not the Millers. We're the Rosses. We're the Ross family. This is how we live. This is what we do. This is what we prioritize. And in the midst of temptation, is a desire to look at the world and say, this is how the world does this. And Jesus, our loving heavenly father says, you're part of my family. That's not who you are. And you can trust me, because my children have a flawed dad, but you can trust your heavenly father that what he wants for you is far better than what this world has to offer for you. That's the call and temptation is to know we are his and what he has for us. And when you talk about hell, inevitably people think, well, that's not loving, that's mean, we shouldn't talk about that. Who are we to say those things? Alistair Begg says this. The one who said the most striking statements about hell was the one who was willing to give everything so you didn't have to go there. The reason we talk about this is because of love. And if you ever doubt God's love for you, and the need to withstand temptation, remember what Christ was willing to do for you so you wouldn't experience the consequences of hell. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for Christ. And Lord, I just pray that everyone in this room realizes that the reason we sin is ultimately not because of the context we live in, the people around us, but it's what's in our heart. You create us, you give us breath, and we try to live this life apart from you, apart from your lordship. And to become a Christian is to just realize that. And to realize that when we turn around and head in your direction, 
grace is available to us. But God, may we not think that you are the means to just what we want in this life because that's not worship of you. That's not dealing with our heart issue. That's actually amplifying our issue to try to use God to get what we want. But God, when we turn around, as a Christian, we realize you are the direction. You are the way. You are the truth. You are the life. So Lord, if there's someone in here right now or they're living apart from you, they've never turned to you, God, I just pray right now. God, they would just admit the sin in their heart. And they would realize the grace on the cross and the empty grave which says, when we die to ourselves, God has the power to resurrect us and give us new life, a new direction, new purpose, new hope, new joy, real joy. God, I pray if there's someone in this room right now who there is a sin that is consuming, God, through your spirit, may they have the boldness to just take drastic and immediate action. God, not wanting to be that anymore, not wanting to be in bondage anymore, not wanting to tell themselves a lie, not wanting to be in shame. And yes, when we confess that to you, God, there is shame and there is guilt, but you relieve us of that, Lord Jesus. May they remember the loving Father that you are, who guides and corrects and encourages, and his discipline is meant for our good. God, may they see themselves in just a glimpse of the way that you see them. And Lord, as Christians, the temptation is real every single day. May we depend on you every moment, every hour, because you're what we need. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.